0: So tonight we continue our study of the Old Testament book of Exodus. God has just brought His people Israel out of slavery in Egypt by a series of mighty acts. Now at the foot of Mount Sinai, He is showing them how to live as His special people. Tonight we focus on the Ten Commandments. What the Ten Commandments say about loving each other. Please um, read with me Exodus twenty one through two, one through two, and twelve through seventeen. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord.
1: One of the privileges of my job is that I get to witness a lot of people falling in love and sometimes, actually very often, out of love. And, um, you know, it's interesting when, when, when people sort of get together and they start dating, there's always this thought of like, is this like the real thing? Or is this just like a flash in the pan? And there's really no way to know, um, but I can get a pretty good idea usually. And when a couple gets together and they start um, just really sort of withdrawing from their friends, like their friends don't see them anymore, um, that doesn't mean that they just, when they hang out there with each other with you, that doesn't mean that they're antisocial. But when they begin to be truly antisocial, they only hang out with each other. Oh, and um, they start to slack on school, kind of disengage from school, and they start to have a sort of a strained relationship with their parents, then I'm, I'm skeptical of the relationship. I'm like, I don't think this is going to last, but I'll tell you how I know that it's usually the real thing, is when they get together, but they become better friends, they become more like committed and robust in their friendships, they become more inspired about school, they start to actually listen and care more for what their parents are saying and they're involved with their parents. And to me, I'm like, I'm hearing wedding bells when that's happening. Because it is true that love, being in love, increases your capacity for love. Does that make sense? When you love something and you love someone and it's real love, it actually doesn't limit you from ever loving other things. It enables you and gives you more of a capacity to love. And um, when God rescues a person from their sin, and it's okay that you don't know what that means, um, but when God rescues a person in Jesus, like he rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, um, that saving love of God is meant to transform the way that person relates to everyone else, how they relate to God, how they relate to their parents, how they relate to loved ones, um, uh, romantic interests, and friends. Um, That love is supposed to beget more love. That makes sense. And Jesus summarized all of God's moral instructions. If you've read the Bible, then you know it's a very moral book. It talks about behavior a lot. And Jesus summarized all that into two great commandments. Love God with everything that is in you and love your neighbor as yourself. And these six commandments that we're looking at tonight from Exodus aren't all that the Bible says about loving other people. They really only begin to scratch the surface. Um, But these commandments really illustrate something very profound about human beings from God's perspective. And so if you have a handout there, you'll see there's a little outline. It says, why love your neighbor, three times. But we'll say, why love your neighbor, why love your neighbor, and why love your neighbor. The emphasis is everything in this outline, apparently. Um, So why love my neighbor? What's what's the reason? Why why should we love other people from God's perspective? Um, No matter what religious system that you study or philosophy that you study, I don't think that you will find a higher view of human beings than you find in the Bible. Like, as far as saying how worthy are human beings, like, what is the value of a human being? I would say the Bible has the highest view of any system because the Bible teaches us that God created human beings in his image. Not just as part of creation, not just as you know, one of the many things he created, but the crown jewel of his creation where all the people in this room, whether you uh, know God or not, bear God's image. You are like a walking portrait of God, the Bible says. And so you are full of dignity and honor and glory and infinite value because God loved you and made you. In his image, you're the very reflection of God. And C.S. Lewis put this really well. I think we, we walk around and there are like important people and not important people in our lives. But C.S. Lewis put it great. He said, "Look, it's a serious thing to live in a society of immortals." Okay, the Bible teaches that we're immortal. To remember that, and listen to this: that millions of years from now, the dullest and most uninteresting person you meet may one day be an incredible creature who, if you saw them now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or a horror, as you can only meet in a nightmare. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals with whom we joke, work, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This is the this is the money point. Your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your sentence, to your senses. From the Bible's perspective, human beings are the holiest thing that you will ever. Encounter in the world because we're created in God's image. And these commandments bear that out and they illustrate that. Look at look at the commandments only. You see the sixth commandment there in verse 13. It says, You shall not murder. Now, the the last five commandments are all negative. They say, Don't do something, don't murder, don't steal, don't covet, don't commit adultery. But the commandments assume the positive, and all the rest of the Bible teaches us. It's not just don't murder. Okay, so like if I haven't murdered, then everything's good. But the positive is also true. Do everything in your power to protect and preserve life. Does that make sense? Don't murder people, number one, but also do everything you can to protect and preserve human life. And this plays out in in a million ways. I'm really inspired by a lot of you guys who care very deeply for people that have special needs, for individuals in our community that have uh, physical and developmental and mental um, disabilities, uh, it's a really beautiful thing to see y'all, especially those of you that are going to the special ed, caring for these people and, and really affirming the dignity of them as created people and as human beings, not as in any way lesser, but as, as a unique person that has their own personality and life and should be um, uh, promoted. Um, this applies to life, whether that life is unborn or whether that life is someone that is elderly. Um, you know, we, life must be protected and given opportunity to thrive regardless of age. We often cast off people when they're older because we feel like they don't have any um, value to society. So it, replace, it relates to life in that way. But also if you think about things like mass incarceration, especially people of color. Um, our uh, Black Student Association on campus is a wonderful group and they have a bulletin board up outside McAllister's. Um, highlighting Angela Davis, who is a writer and activist, and she taught at UC Santa Cruz for a long time, and she has really fought against mass incarceration, and there's a great quote on the bulletin board where she says, jails and prisons are designed to break human beings, to convert the population into specimens in a zoo, obedient to our keepers, but dangerous to each other. She's making a really great point. like prisons and jails and especially when when people of of a certain um, group are incarcerated to such a degree it's meant to dehumanize a person and there are ways that life is diminished or destroyed that you if you have it within your power should work against does that make sense it's not just don't murder but but preserve life promote life because from God's perspective life is absolutely sacred whether they're a loud sneezer or not (laughs) Okay, so take the seventh commandment right there. It says, uh, don't commit adultery, okay? This is where we're going to talk about sex for a second, so I have everybody's attention. Um, Because people are so full of glory, the Bible says our deepest intimacy should be complete and exclusive, okay? Hang with me on this, all right? Um, This commandment shows the biblical ethic of sex, and that ethic is this. It is an exclusive thing shared between a husband and a wife. Okay? And here's why that's beautiful and not repressive. If you'll just grant me a second. Okay? Um, hang with me. You can be mad at me later. That's cool. I still love you. And please still love me. God is saying that human beings are so worthy and so full of dignity and honor and glory that our intimacy and our eroticism should be completely focused on one person, okay? And it should be complete. Um, Biblically, sex is a declaration that you are completely committed to another person, that you're all in with them. And um, mind, body, soul, finances, social sphere, all that. You share one life, and that's why you run again and again, those of you that run to porn, those of you that run to hooking up, again and again, and you are trying to scratch an itch that you're never scratching. You're, you, have a, you have a deep longing that you can't get satisfied from that because you desire a complete intimacy. But in a marriage, you give yourself completely to another person, socially, sexually, physically, legally. Um, that isn't a limitation of sex. Okay, that is an expansion of sex. It's saying, um, God's saying that, what, that you aren't just, to just give yourself to someone um, and, and partially. Tim Keller puts this well. He says, to be physically naked but not naked in any other way. To be physically vulnerable but not vulnerable in any other way is monstrous. If you say I want to have sex with you but I don't want to marry you, you're saying I want to f- be physically vulnerable to you tonight but I don't want to be completely vulnerable to you. See how you're only giving part of yourself. Like, you want to be physically naked, but not naked with your time, friends, money, future. And, um, that is limited intimacy. Okay? So the Bible is not restricting sex, but because humans are so full of dignity, God says we should be free to give ourselves completely to another person and expect the same from them. Whole people deserve whole love from the Bible as it comes to sex, um, the ninth commandment, it says, it says, don't bear false witness against your neighbor. That's not just don't lie, but that means also speak the truth. Use language to build up and to promote that person's life. Those of you guys that have been engaged in gossip, which is everybody in here, and those of you that have been the victim of gossip, which is probably also everybody in here, you know that the way you talk can affirm or obscure another person's dignity. It's very easy. So, God calls his people to love others because each person is full of worth. Are you catching that? These people are so worthy of love. It just as they come out of the box because they're created in God's image. So, why love my neighbor is the second point there. Um, who exactly is this for? When God calls his people to love their neighbor, your neighbor is by default the person that is there, right? You often don't choose your neighbors. And because of the overwhelming worth of human beings, the people of God are called to love everyone the same, regardless of who they are, regardless of what they've done. It is a consistent love without discrimination. OK, does that make sense? God doesn't say love these people, but not these others. Jesus puts this well in Matthew 5. He says, look, you've heard it said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Do you understand Like how crazy that is? You don't feel like you have enemies, right? And that's is like kind of the society that we live in. Jesus is saying, don't just love the people that are around you. He actually goes on to say, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even like the worst sinful people do that. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? He's saying, love everyone consistently around you the same, no matter what they've done, no matter what they've done to you. Um, No matter who they are, you're supposed to give them the same. So if you see the eighth commandment there, it says, you shall not steal. The question is like, well, what if it doesn't hurt anybody? Like, what What if my, my roommate has 47 Gatorades, you know, in the room? They're clearly not going to miss Gatorade. They're going to have it still. Like, the Gator, they will still be well supplied with Gatorade. They won't even notice. I just take this one Gatorade. Not a big deal. Or, you know, like, no one's going to know this company has tons of money if I just sort of fluff up my time card a little bit. Or if I sort of cut some corners on my taxes. It's the federal government. It'll be fine. No one will notice. But you notice how God is saying... Your call to protect another person's possessions and to be generous um, is universal. It doesn't matter the other person's circumstances. And I think this is most, command, uh, most poignant for us in the fifth commandment. There in verse 12. Honor your father and your mother. Um, this, is, this is hard for us. It's hard for me. Um, the, the word there, honor, actually is a Hebrew word, kabod, which means weight. To be weighty, something to be heavy. He's saying treat your parents, like give them weight in your life. Like they should be something significant in your life, what they say. Give them a lot of weight. There's intrinsic value in parents is what God is, what God is saying. Um, really, our parents are the, one of the most basic and valuable gifts that God gives us. But that's not easy for everybody in here. It's not easy for anybody in here, I would say. But for some of us, it's like, but what if my parents were terrible? Like me, like my dad was gone. Like he wasn't around. And like even now has no interest in having a relationship with me. He's told me that very clearly. Some of you guys have that same experience or similar experiences. What if they weren't great parents? What do you do? Uh, God says honor them. That doesn't mean that you do everything they say. That doesn't mean that everything they say is binding in your life. It doesn't mean that you have to give them affection even doesn't mean that you have to be intimate and give them affection in that way. It doesn't necessarily mean that I have to force a relationship with someone that doesn't want a relationship with me back. It's sort of like dehumanizing, you know, in a sense to do that. Um, It doesn't mean that if your parents have hurt you, there shouldn't be legitimate repercussions for them. Okay. But regardless of how great they were or how awful they were, God calls us to honor them, to give them honor just because they are Parents. I saw a great example of this recently. A friend of mine who does RUF, his name is Sammy, and uh, he wrote a book, and it's on the book table. I think it's all checked out. But um, by the way, you can check out books on the book table. But his dad, when he was like 10, 11, something like that, um, got into some bad stuff, was unfaithful to his mom, ran around his mom. Some of you guys know that feeling. Um, his dad was addicted to, to, to heavy drugs and when Sammy was like a preteen, his dad left. He wasn't around. And, um, and he writes about him very honestly in the book. And if you read about it, he's, he doesn't gloss over it. But he also writes about his dad with honor. And I went to Sammy's um, book release party. And it was crazy because his dad was there. And I was like, it was like a celebrity. And I was like, wow, this is Sammy's dad. This is a dude that has like inflicted legitimate super pain on, like, my, on my good friend. It's weird to see him in the, in the flesh. Um, But it was so, in a lot of ways, disturbing and also inspiring to me to watch him interact with his dad. Because he really honored his dad. Like, he really spoke well of his dad. He treated him with honor. He treated him with respect. And I am certain that there are a lot of limitations on their relationship, and there's a lot of boundaries in their relationship. And I know that there's much pain in that relationship. But Sammy, my friend, my brother in Jesus... Is as one center to another center, honoring his father well, um, and just to see him struggling through that was really inspiring to me. A huge part of honoring your parents means treating them like human beings that make mistakes. I know a lot of you guys think like your parents are these like statues; they're like always the same. Like they were the same your whole life, and now they're never like they don't have room to grow. Like this is just who they are because they're forty-five and they're never going to change. Um, uh, give your parents opportunity to grow. Speak well of your parents and speak well to them. Because um, God calls us to, to honor them regardless of what uh, they have done. So, so God calls us people to, to love other people because they're so full of worth and, and glory and honor. And he calls us people to the same love no matter who that person is. Okay, but this is this is why I want to get to the nitty gritty here. So, but why love my neighbor? One of my professors in college, I had made. I was an art major, and I had made a piece about loving my neighbor, and it made her angry. She was like, "I don't like that. Can't command somebody to love somebody." Um, what does that mean? It, it it makes all kinds of sense. You're like, okay, you should honor your parents. You shouldn't murder. You shouldn't commit adultery. You shouldn't steal. You shouldn't lie. But then you get to the tenth commandment in verse 17, and things get really wonky. Because it says you shall not covet your neighbor's house or any of your neighbor's stuff. And that word means like in not like like inside you shouldn't like be greedy, like or have like an unchecked desire for what your neighbor has. Like in a lot of ways, that's super unfair. Like it's one thing for me to tell you, like, make sure to show up on time, make sure not to do this. But it's another thing for me to go. And by the way, don't even want to do that. Like don't even nurse a desire For that, Uh, how could you even stop that? When most people really interact with the Bible and they really consider it, they never say, "You know, the standards in the Bible are just too low," and that's why Christian people are behave so poorly. Most people that read it honestly say, "The standards in the Bible are too high. Like it's legitimately impossible to stop yourself from from coveting. It's just too high." But see, and this is something that I want you to catch. If if you've been spaced out, I want you to catch this. God is showing us something very fundamental about how human beings work. That deep down, inside of us, something is broken. If we're a house, our foundation is cracked and crumbling so that the whole house is um, unstable. We don't just murder or steal on a whim. We murder or steal according to the Bible because inside of us is a deep desire for something that we can't have, so we take it. There's a deep desire in our hearts to eliminate something because it's causing us pain, so we murder. And it comes from within inside. Um, And Paul in Romans 7 says when he read this commandment, he said, I died. I just realized I, I couldn't do it. Because God is telling us, look... Um, you've got to deal with the thing that's deep down inside if you're ever going to love somebody. Does that make sense? You could, you could do, do all the things. Like, think about like, if, you, if you're married. Yeah, you could do all the things. You could wash the dishes. You could take out the trash. You could do whatever. You could take care of the kids. But in a sense, if that person is not allowed into the deep recesses inside of you, it's not love. Um, and God is saying to really love your neighbor, you got to go down to the deepest part inside of you. Because it's not just about not murdering them. It's about actively loving them. And you guys know there's a difference between that. It's deeper than our actions. And the way that Jesus calls us to love our neighbor isn't merely refraining from murdering or sleeping with them. It's genuine love, and that starts inside. G.K. Chesterton, Roman Catholic guy, said Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. You catch what he's saying? It has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. It's just too overwhelmingly difficult. And the reason I bring that up is, it's amazing to think about Jesus. You have a dude who's living in like the most seriously monotheistic society possible, where nobody is going to buy your whole like "I'm God" thing. Because when you spend time with like, if I was, if I told you I am God and I'm perfect, and you spent like twelve minutes with me. He be like this guy's full of it. He's clearly not God. But there was something about Jesus and the way that he interacted with all of his neighbors that gave some credence to that idea that he could actually be perfect. Because Jesus didn't only refrain from breaking these commandments; Jesus actively loved everybody that was his neighbor. He's the eternal Son of God, and he gave weight, respect, and care to his earthly parents. Like he loved his mother to the end. When Jesus was on the cross, he cared for his mother. He told his disciple, John, take care of her. This is, this is now your mother. Um, he preserved and nurtured the lives of his neighbors. He healed their diseases. When Lazarus was dead, he, he called him out of the tomb. And then before he did, he was angry and crying and upset because his friend had died and he brought him back to life. What's amazing to me Because you guys interact with with people of the opposite sex all the time. Jesus treated every man and woman he encountered with dignity and respect. And was always a safe person for another person's intimacy. Can you you imagine that? Every man and woman that he dealt with, some of them had incredibly intimate moments with them. And he was always (coughs) safe for them and never ever once abused their intimacy. It's amazing. Um, he used his possessions and his words to heal and to bless and never to diminish our harm. And most remarkably, even in the quiet recesses of Jesus' heart, the places where no one else knows about, the places, the things that you don't tell anyone, even in the quiet places, Jesus never coveted, but always desired the best for everyone that was around him. It's amazing. And when Jesus... Comes into a person's heart by the Holy Spirit. When that kind of pure love comes into a person's life, um, it's like there's this video that's been on Facebook forever. You just like have that video that like every time you go on, it's on there. And it's like this has been three years now. Um, the video that's always is for me is the the foam going down into the concrete video. Do you guys know this one? Where it's like it's like this sort of foam repair. So like let's say your driveway is all like messed up, they drill into your driveway and they put the thing down and they fill it up with foam and like it raises up the driveway. Have you guys seen this? Where there's like a cracked foundation, right? And they they drill in and it fills all the cracks and like settles the house like it's supposed to be. The house is sagging and it fills in all those cracks and like the house raises up four inches, right? Because it gets down in those cracks. Jesus comes to do repair to what is broken in the deepest part of your heart. Like the part of your heart where there where there are cracks that you don't even know about so that we can love our neighbor not just outwardly but from what's inside of us. Jesus says that he's living water and if that living water gets into you it will become a well of water springing up onto everlasting life. Look we've talked for three weeks about the Ten Commandments now and what you and I need and what this campus needs and what our culture needs and the world needs is not just like for people to be more moral. Like, we just need to put the Ten Commandments out there. People will know how to live this life and they'll, they'll get after it. Like, that would be fine. That would be great if people like were, like were had better morals, I suppose. But what we need is new life in Jesus. Um, a new life that can break down to our deepest depths, the place of our secrets, and can bring forth life and soundness. Um, so if you're here tonight... And you're a Christian, and you call yourself a Christian. You take the name of Jesus. You say, "I'm trusting in Jesus um, to make me right with God and give me new life." Um, God's law is not here for you to measure yourself and other people's behavior with. I hope that you've grasped that if you've been if you've been here and you've heard this. The law is not a measuring stick for the people around you, or like I get I, this. I'm told this at churches every single time I preach in a church. Well, you know, it's right there. People's lives wouldn't be so hard if they would just... And I'm like, dude, you're in church every week and you're totally missing it. Um, The Ten Commandments are a new way of life, a life of sacrificial love. Um, That is to give the world a taste of Jesus. The reason why God calls you to keep the law is not so that your life will be fine. It's so that other people around you can see, wow, Jesus loves sacrificially. He must because that person's loving me sacrificially. Um, and you think about what, what C.S. Lewis said, he said those immortal horrors or everlasting splendors that you come into contact with, like when the sun burns out and like the mountains that we're on are pebbles, those people in this room that you're sitting next to that are still around. Um, God is saying your interaction with them is nudging them toward everlasting splendor of a person or immortal horror of a person. And if you're here and you're not and you're not yet a Christian I'm super thrilled that you're here and that we're all figuring this thing out together have you ever experienced a kind of love that gets beyond superficial and goes down deep to fix the parts that you don't even want to talk about yourself doesn't it at least make you interested in who this Jesus could be it's true love it really isn't it changes everything let's pray Jesus thank you so much um, that you've come to be with us. You lived perfectly, and I can't even begin to wrap my mind around that. I can't imagine what it's like to interact with another human being without my mixed motives, without my secret desires for them or for their stuff, and yet you've done it, and you bring that love to bear in our hearts, and that's amazing. Lord, would you teach us how to love our neighbor, not just to restrain from hurting them, but to actively seek they're good, so that they can have a taste of Jesus. And Lord, if if people are here and they don't know what that's like, would you make them interested? Give them a thirst for living water. We pray in your name. Amen.